I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This is our first recording in our new studio, and I am very pleased to have Sean Van Tyne with me today. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Sean, you are a, uh, a writer, uh, a public speaker, a consultant specializing in uh, user experience, customer experience, user interface design, and this podcast supposedly is about beacons, but I think one of the things that uh, characterizes... Supposedly is, about beacons? Supposedly, because actually we cover a lot of things okay. that go way beyond that's, beacons, and you're fair. not like a beacon guy. No. You've done projects where there may have been beacons involved, maybe. But um, the, the way I like to, I mean, for me, this is really just an excuse to talk to interesting people that uh, uh, can and teach me. me things. Interesting people and me. <laughs> Well, you are um, doubly interesting because, uh, you know, this podcast probably wouldn't have happened but for you. What? Uh, because you were one of the people, when I was thinking about writing a book, you and I went out for coffee. You were very generous with your time, and you basically schooled me on um, writing books. And you've written how many books? I've written a few books. And uh, <laughs> so generally on the topic of... So uh, my most recent book, which probably isn't that recent anymore, is called uh, Easy to Use 2.0. Mm -hmm. It's a very niche book. It's about um, user experience um, in agile development for enterprise software. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wrote that book is because I've been in the enterprise space doing user experience for more than a couple of decades now and saw the rise of agile development. And I'm a big fan of agile development. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what a lot of organizations were struggling with when they uh, were adopting Agile was how does user experience fit into that? And um, I helped a lot of companies as an employee and then also as a consultant, uh, a lot of enterprise software companies. And I thought, you know what, I should probably just you know, kind of write the handbook for this. Um, and it, it's been pretty well received. I get a lot of good feedback about, oh my God, thanks for explaining that to us. Or, Obviously, it also ends up you know, being kind of a calling card, like, hey, you're the guy that wrote that book. Can you help Absolutely. us with that? So that's my most recent book. Uh, hard to believe, about a decade ago, uh, Jeffrey Bean and I did the customer experience revolution. 
Um, customer experience back then was kind of a new word, right? There wasn't a whole lot of books on it. I think Gene Bliss, chief customer officer, was probably the only book um, and was actually the inspiration for us. And interesting, because Jeff and I got to speak on the same stage with Gene. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Well, I'm listening to his book, and it still has relevance now. Yeah. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very so, prescient. Yeah, and we're you know, the customer experience revolution did really, really well. It, it's sold over ten thousand copies. Which, if you've sold, a, if you have a book out there, that's a that's a pretty good number. Yeah. You know, most books don't sell over a thousand. So. Right. You know, so that that's been really good, and it's used in. Um, I know it's used in universities and organizations around the world. I know. When Oracle rolled out their customer experience, they used our book uh, as their training book, and obviously UCSD uh, uses it because Jeff teaches the course on marketing. <laughs> All right, and you, you you teach at UCSD sometimes as well. Yeah, I'm more of a more of a guest lecturer. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was there last week. Um, they have this new course called uh, D4SD or Design for San Diego, and I was involved with the early concepts of it through uh, working with Donald Norman at the Design Lab. And now it's an actual course, and it's a it's a very exciting um, relationship between um, UCSD Innovation and the City of San Diego. So, um, using students in the community to solve uh, city problems using uh, design thinking mm -hmm. is uh, so. I was there uh, last week talking about specifically prototyping and where prototyping plays in the larger role of innovation. So we've kind of scratched the surface a little bit, but hopefully provided some basic introduction to your background. So let's just uh, put a wrap up the, the why the conversation piece of the introduction, which is, uh, you know, Bluetooth beacons, proximity technology, real-time location systems, they're compelling applications. I think they're still driving a lot of, of work. We're really just starting on this journey of being able to track everything and knowing how to connect it to the Internet of Things. But all of that technology is useless uh, if it doesn't result in an application that human beings can engage with. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, when I wrote the Beacon Technologies book, we tried to take a holistic view. We looked at alternative technologies. We looked at the supporting systems around beacons. And I think user experience design uh, is uh, uh, and looking at the customer journey uh, are all essential if you're going to be successful. And you know maybe people have been successful without thinking about it, but it definitely helps if you do. Um, and uh, at a personal level, when I was at Qualcomm, we had a great user experience team, and we would get so many amazing ideas and insights by listening to users, interviewing them. Yeah. And they have a it's, great team. it's really the difference, can be the difference between success and failure. So yes, we want to tell people about the latest uh, protocols, uh, but we also want to give people some tools and some insights into what will make projects successful. So that's why you're here. Mm -hmm. You help me get the, the ideas uh, formulated to publish uh, my book. Um, and I think I always have a lot of respect for consultants who see many, many different customers uh, and see the patterns of what works, what doesn't work, oh, and yeah. you've done that. And also you've had to do the hard work of sitting down and structuring your ideas. And uh, you know they say the best way to, uh, to learn is to teach, but I actually think writing goes even further because yeah. you've got to get it right. You're yeah. held to account. It's yeah. down there in black yeah. and white. That's interesting. That, that's probably true, being uh, having both a background in, in teaching and writing. But... Uh, 
Writing's a lot harder than teaching, that's for sure. So uh, before we jump into what is the difference between uh, a user interface and customer experience and user experience and uh, getting some terminology sorted out, just uh, let's finish off how you got into into this business at all. I mean, you we were talking earlier. <laughs> you're an artist. I can tell from your shirt, you're still an artist at, at heart. How you come know, you're doing I, what you're doing? By the way, I used to hide the fact I was an artist for probably a good 15 years. All right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I have a BFA in painting, and I spent uh, most of my life as an artist. I'd get up every day and go to my studio and I'd paint and. I teach in the afternoons and uh, you know have exhibits and I've sold work all over the world as an artist. But when we had our first child living in San Diego, it just wasn't a consistent enough revenue stream to you know buy a house in a nice neighborhood with good schools, i.e. Poway, because um, we knew that's where we wanted to end up. So uh, I was going to make this career switch. I just finished. Uh, uh, doing my master's in education with a thesis in art integrated education because at the time I was involved with the San Diego Aesthetic Institute doing artists in residencies, um, helping uh, school systems integrate art into their educational program. Uh, not surprisingly that when a learner, regardless if they're adult or they're a child, when a learner had, learns through art, they tend to remember the information longer and better and they've shown this with standardized testing. So um, people that get that obviously want to uh, integrate art into their, into their curriculum. So that's kind of where my head was at going into my master's. Um, this is like back in the 90s. Um, and I had friends, though, who were software engineers. And uh, when I was looking for something that I felt was just as creative as being an artist or a teacher, um, but also was relevant and I'm kind of a change junkie, so I, I kind of wanted something that was constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. My software friend said, well, that's what we do as software developers. Mm -hmm. we, we make software, and it, the technology is always changing, and it's really interesting. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if I can make that kind of a, kind of a switch, mm -hmm. right, with my art and education background. But it was the 90s, and if you remember what the 90s were, it's like there was such a shortage of technologists and anyone who really wanted to kind of jump in, jumped in. So I started out back in uh, IT doing database architecture and network architecture, mm -hmm. ironically at Frazee Paint, whose headquarters was in San Diego. Uh, and then there's this thing called the internet that came along and um, it looked pretty interesting to me. So I kind of refocused on web development and web design. Mm -hmm. And then by the uh, late 90s was when the whole dot-com thing you know, started exploding. And I got to work at a, a really good dot-com and kind of rode that way from boom to bust. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it all, all came to an end at the, the beginning of the century. Mm -hmm. um, but by then, I definitely had developed my um, technology chops and my experience design chops. And um, I parked it at Mitchell International, um, started out in their uh, global architecture team as a UX architect, um, but eventually became their head of design and grew them uh, a design department, which I'm happy to say is probably bigger now than back in the day that I was mm. there. Then I consulted again for a while until the crash of 2008. Um, and then I parked it at FICO. Um, a lot of people think about the FICO score. Yes. Uh, but at the core, that's the, the core of what they do is predictive analytics. So a lot of machine learning and predictive analytics. A lot of people don't know they were the original recommendation engine for Netflix. 
Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, they provide a lot of the uh, marketing strategy uh, background for companies like Coca-Cola or Target. Yeah, if it's they've been they've been big data predictive analytics before people were even using those terms. So why do they care about user experience? Well, because at the so my target in most of those cases were um, data scientists. Mm -hmm. So data scientists are um, developing models and scoring systems. They too need an interface to be able to uh, you know look at that data, a lot of big data information architecture and things like that. Um, but we're also sometimes dealing with a strategist at company who want to um, play around with the strategy models. Mm -hmm. So we have to create an interface that's simple enough for the strategist who may not be a data scientist mm -hmm. to give them some kind of easy tools for them to visualize um, how their strategy is going to work and create their champions and challengers without having to bring in the data scientists. Or in some cases like Coca-Cola, um, we were dealing with their folks in marketing who were developing marketing strategies. So. Um, that was a fun. That was a fun client helping to figure out, you know, who their persona was, um, and helping them figure out um, kind of their whole strategy around marketing. So you dropped some terms in that I want to uh, double click on. Um, so you were talking about champions and challenges. Yeah. So in machine learning, uh, you might call it multivariance testing, which means that whenever you have a, a model and you want to see how successful that model mm -hmm. is you can test it against other models, mm -hmm. right? In uh, machine language, we, uh, we have a thing called champion challenger, which means we have a current model that's running today uh, that is getting the success that we want, mm -hmm. but someone will develop what's called the challenger model. Oh, okay. And then we'll test the, the challenger against the champion. Okay. And if the challenger wins, then it becomes the new champion. Interesting. So let's, uh, again, take a step back and look at I've asserted that user experience is important, and I think we can all relate to bad user interfaces uh, are a turn-off, good user interfaces are, are compelling, but what is it that causes companies to bring you in um, and go from, I think we can handle this ourselves, to we need help? Yeah, so I credit a lot of this to Apple. Um, you know, Apple is definitely one of the most profitable companies in the world, was the most profitable. I think they're second most profitable right mm -hmm. now. And I think a lot of business people were looking at Apple and were saying, wow, why is Apple so successful? And Apple will tell you it's all about the user experience. That's all they think about. You know, mm -hmm. Johnny Ives is, is king and, and Steve Jobs himself was a great experience designer. Uh, also had a you know a creative background. It was right. it was his interest in calligraphy that actually led to the graphic user interface, huh. uh, and his interest in fonts. And hey, we should offer a bunch of fonts, right? Yeah. So, um, so I credit Apple in general for businesses being interested in user experience because if one of the most profitable companies in the world says the reason we're profitable is because of the user experience, mm -hmm. then that's something. I think also um, Amazon's a pretty uh, pretty profitable company. And uh, Jeff Bezos from day one said, I want to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason why he named it Amazon and not online bookstore, right? He knew at the beginning that books was going to be his foray mm -hmm. into creating an online shopping experience for what would eventually be everything, mm -hmm. right? And what foresight. And, you know, a lot of people don't know for the first, well, you probably do, for the first nine years, he showed no profit. And, you know, the stakeholders weren't happy about that. And he kept on putting it back into... The experience. Now, the interesting thing between Apple and Amazon is, uh, do you know where Larry Tesler is? 
Larry Tesler just passed a couple days ago. Larry Tesler uh, is the guy who uh, came up with co copy and paste. Oh. And he was Steve Jobs' chief scientist mm -hmm. at Apple. And then he went for Jeff Bezos and became the VP of shopping experience mm -hmm. there. We interviewed him in our book, The Customer Experience Revolution. Super nice guy, super smart, you know, was there at, at the beginning of the whole, you know, how do you design software experience? I mean, cut, copy, and paste. I mean, it's like, I can't imagine life without cut, copy, and paste, but he's the guy who thought of it. It's like, hey, there should be some way to graphically cut, copy, and paste, right? I've, I've meandered down some roads. No, no, that's fascinating. I, I, I'm, I was just stuck on the cut, copy, and paste thing, and I, I was trying to think back to when it was, because I remember finding out about that and just thinking, this is just amazing. Yeah, yeah, uh, so he was like par Parks Lab, yeah. you know, back in the day. Okay, so. So why do people hire me? I think that was the question. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I asked, answered it in a very broad way. It's, yeah. it's um, again, uh, businesses want to make profit and they want to be profitable. And when they look at some of the most profitable companies, the CEO is the person to say, user experience or customer experience is what drives our revenue growth. So then, then they look within themselves and they say, do we really have someone that knows how to do it? And to be honest, um, my customers could be one or the other thing. If it's a large company like a Sony PlayStation, um, it's probably gonna be someone like the head of product who's gonna bring me in to help them you know, reorganize their, um, you know, their department. Or in the case of like Netgear, the head of, the head of design brings me in kind of as a partner uh -huh. to help him you know, decide what's the next growth. For smaller or medium-sized companies, they don't have a head of design. Um, so I kind of play that interim head of design role, um, and I'll help them based on their market, help them uh, design a process that you know works for them. And sometimes we'll help them actually hire their head of design. I do that quite a bit, or other resources they need. And I'm sure every client is different, but if you've got a client who has got a uh, an application which has got a horrible user interface, or maybe they, they just know that they need a good one and they're developing something. W what's the process? What's, uh, at a general level, how do, you, um, how do you help them? What do you do? Sure, so to me, uh, it's, it's research, design, and test. Mm -hmm. So um, if, they, if they have a, uh, a current solution in the market, be it an application or uh, an enterprise solution or even a service. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter to me what it is. They have an experience that they are delivering. Um, they have a, to me, they, even in a larger context, they have a brand promise that they're delivering and they may or may not be delivering it well or they may not be really aware if they're, if they're meeting that promise. Um, that's kind of at the grandiose customer level. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes right down to uh, the application, this is really the difference between user experience and customer experience. The, I hate the term user, but the user experience is where the, the customer touches the products mm -hmm. or the services and interacts with them, right? So the, well, when we say customer experience, we're really talking about um, their thoughts and feelings about the brand, usually. Mm -hmm. And you're talking, usually talking to marketing folks like mm -hmm. the CMO. Uh, when you're talking about user experience, you're usually talking to the product folks or the technology folks about that, that actual interaction. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, the user interface, that's mm -hmm. one aspect of the interaction. Um, typically what we'll do in engagement is we will evaluate the current um, solution or user interface. Um, and in my industry, it's been pretty standardized for a few decades. 
Uh, there's a thing that we, we call heuristics. There's 10 standard heuristics that we um, measure against. So we'll go through an application, maybe screen by screen, um, and based on that criteria, give it a score, right? Um, and then based on that score and those findings, we can go back to um, the client and say, hey, we did an evaluation of your current solution, and here's how we scored it. Um, based on these findings, here are our recommendations of what kind of changes you'd make. And, and give me some examples of those heuristics. Um, so probably one of the most simple ones are around information architecture. Mm -hmm. And information architecture is um, the organization of the information or content. Mm -hmm. So it could get into like the top level navigation. Um, is, does, it, does it make sense to your end user? Terminology is a big thing, right? Because a lot of companies design things inside out, um, and they will they'll think of, here's, here's the best way to think about it. Have you ever been to a website, and that company's website tells you what it does, mm -hmm. but it doesn't tell you what it does for you? Mm. So that's a very important distinction. Mm -hmm. And most companies make this mistake. They're so much inside their head, they think about what we do mm -hmm. instead of uh, instead of explaining instead of thinking in terms of their audience who really doesn't care what they do. Mm -hmm. They just want to know what is the benefit to me. Mm -hmm. How are you going to help me? Mm -hmm. um, and we help a lot of companies kind of change that language from this is what you do to this is what you do for mm. your your audience. So how do you avoid kind of getting obnoxious and salesy um, versus? The, the positive side of that, which is, here's why I should even bother spending any time with this tool. How do you yeah, so get that balance? I'm not a salesy guy at all. Um, uh, I'm very data-driven. So um, every decision that I make or anyone on my team makes, um, they have to know every element of that design and the, the data reason why that's there. It could be because it's a standard best practices. Like, oh, well, that's the right contrast because we know people who are farsighted, mm -hmm. the font needs to be this size, and mm -hmm. the contrast from the background color and the foreground color mm -hmm. needs to be this. Mm -hmm. Or it might come out of a test. It's like, oh, the reason that we're using this terminology or this particular grouping of information in a menu is because we tested it with 10 people, and 8 out of 10 said this is what they call it, and this is the order they want to see it in. Mm -hmm. That's the best. Mm -hmm. The best is when the data comes from the actual target audience. But in lieu of that, there's all kinds of industry standards about when to use radio buttons versus when to use a drop-down uh -huh. and you know hierarchy of information. There's books and books on this subject. Uh, Fitz Law, I could go into all of it, but uh, me and people in my field, this is the stuff that you know we drink and eat. So we already have this kind of standard understanding of how information or content should be presented. Uh -huh. There's all kinds of rules around mm -hmm. that and industry standards around that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you layer on top of that an understanding of the target audience, hopefully from talking to them. Yeah. Um, and it's the two of those that makes makes it work for that particular brand. Okay. I'm going to tell you that, let's say in the case of uh, a website, because we deal a lot with websites, you know, Websites inherently are written in uh, hypertext markup language or HTML, and there is a uh, a particular uh, semantics to that language. Um, and if you understand that semantics, that will get you ninety percent there. You know, mm -hmm. just writing the code the way it's supposed to be written will get you ninety percent there. The other ten percent is what's individualized for your particular target audience.
Okay. Um, so you have these 10 heuristics. Part of it is the information architecture, the way the, the information is organized on the page, which mm -hmm. is serving the, the purpose and the benefits that someone gets out of the, the thing. And what, what are some of the other things? The, the right choice of the right widget to, uh, to, to, to drive the thing? Yeah. Sliders versus radio buttons? Sure, versus... so that's the interaction part of it. But um, the other aspect of it, is um, the visual design and um, visual design that you know visual design has kind of own language um, so for example most people know what the save icon looks like mm -hmm. and when they see it they'll click on it and they know it's going to save something mm -hmm. but you and i and maybe people of our age know that that symbol is actually a floppy disk, which right. doesn't even exist anymore i know it's right? amazing isn't it so um so metaphors you know like that um, I was, I swear to God, I was just having this conversation yesterday about, the help, I was helping a client and they were using uh, a tab metaphor, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that whole tab metaphor comes from file folder systems. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that you have a stack of file folders, they have these tabs. But the tab of the one that's open, that tab should be the same color as the file that's open, mm -hmm. and the rest of them should be anything but that color. Yeah. It could be gray or blue or whatever. And it, it's interesting how that tab metaphor has somehow gotten lost. And you'll see like the active tab be like, I don't know, blue, but the actual page is white. And one of the simplest things that you can do is say, no, make the tab the same as the background because the metaphor is a tab for a folder. Right. And they've forgotten what it is. They've yes. forgotten that the desktop is a metaphor for a desktop. Right. A folder yeah. is a metaphor for a folder. And going back to the roots of the, what the real world metaphor means, a lot of interaction design and visual design is about understanding the root metaphor and where it comes from. And these metaphors are constantly changing. Um, so for example, I'm dating myself. I remember when the bread came, breadcrumb came about, that's like, you know, you see uh, an underlined link, and there's some kind of path, and it mm -hmm. kind of, it can either show you your physical path of where you went, or, or it can reveal the directory structure of, of whatever it is that mm -hmm. you're in, depending on how they're using the breadcrumb metaphor. But believe it or not, back in the 90s, people um, didn't understand it and didn't use it, and it was only used as a secondary way of navigating. And um, because of mobile devices, and because of the small space, it's become now a primary uh, form of navigation. Um, so that's what's happened. That's, that's how it's evolved over the last 20 years. Another great example is the hamburger menu. The hamburger menu is like those three lines, mm -hmm. and we know now if you see the three lines, if you click on it, you're going to yeah. get you're going to get a hidden menu. Yeah. Right. Um, that came from the mobile world because yes. the, the space was so small. Yeah. But you've seen it be now adapted in in websites or even um, applications. Mm -hmm. Um, so these are the things I get excited about. I get yeah, excited yeah. about metaphors, the origin of the metaphor. Yeah. What does the me metaphor really mean? Um, part of my job is to be able to identify the difference between a fad and a trend. Like, mm -hmm. um, so for example, uh, design got really, really flat. Design got so flat that you couldn't tell if something was clickable. It just went to that extreme. Yes. Remember that? That was. Yeah, I remember Johnny Ive did that thing because everything Ooh. was being rendered with uh, curves and shiny yes. stuff. And it was, uh, and for a while it was like, this is clearly the best way, this is the best user interface. And then they had this flat thing. They went yeah. way too flat. So, yeah. um, and in all, in all fairness, Johnny Ives is an industrial designer. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so he's the one who determined like the, 
the clam shape mm -hmm. on the, the laptops and the mm -hmm. phones. And I mean, Johnny Ives isn't perfect either. As you may recall, the first iPhone had the same clam shape as the, the laptop did, and it mm. was hard to hold, and it kept mm. on slipping out of the hand. Mm. And then in the next design, they, they did the, the flatter mm -hmm. side. Mm -hmm. So that's just you know the evolution of, and that's an industrial design, right? Yeah. So when ja Johnny tried his, his hand at um, you know, software screen design, you know, I don't think that was the right color palette, and it was way too flat. I think the recovery from that was Google, of all companies, because um, Google really didn't invest heavily in visual design, and then they realized they had this disparity, so they created a, a centralized design team, and eventually, I think now they have wonderful design. And, mm. and what they did was they took flat design, but they added just a little bit, just a little bit of a hint, a metaphor of a shadow. Mm. So now a button looked like a button. It's like, mm. oh, now this looks clickable. Yeah. Um, in my world, we call that affordance. Mm. Uh, affordance means that when you look at something. Um, you know what to do. Like um, in the real world, you'll sometimes come up to a door to a building and it's like, do I push this or pull this? Oh, yeah. Right? So yeah. If, you, if you can't tell at a glance, yes. that door has poor affordance. Yes. But if you can tell, it has good affordance. Yes. Um, same thing's true in the software world. Does it look clickable or not? Getting this stuff right is so important. I mean, as users, we tend to beat ourselves up when we get lost. As people, we tend to beat ourselves up when we get lost. And generally, it's uh, you know the reason we got it wrong is because of poor design. There's an old joke, by the way, in in my world. There's only there's only two professions that refer to their customers as users. <laughs> Software and right. know, drug dealers. Yeah. Which is why I try to avoid, even though. Everyone knows what user experience is. I try to call it either customer experience or experience design. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. it's about people. It's about people's interactions with technology that's constantly evolving and okay. people's interaction with people. Well, that's a good segue to maybe the next topic, which, so there's the heuristics. You kind of score what people are doing. You have a set of principles you can use to, to, to do it better. And you've several times talked back to, uh, I think you've suggested kind of empathizing with the target customer, I was mm -hmm. about to say user. Um, I, I hear people talk about personas and that sort of thing. Uh, and I have to say, I had a uh, initial negative reaction towards that. It just seems so bizarre that, because my experience of people designing personas is you start creating these elaborate stories about these people, and I kind of wonder, well, what are we actually doing with this? And so, tell me, why do what are personas? Why use them? When can they really be helpful? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the." F are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So I'm, I'm very pro-persona. Right. Uh, I would and, expect so. And persona-driven. So personas actually started uh, with Greek theater. So in Greek theater, there was the role and the actor and then the persona. Um, and then... Um, Back in the early days of psychology, like Freudian psychology and Jungian psychology, um, personas took on a whole new life in the, the realm of psychology. A persona, kind of the same thing as what the Greek theater is referring to, but more in a psychological profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in the 1950s, um, U.S. marketers started using persona to kind of take their marketing segmentation to a whole other level. Uh, then in the late 1990s, um, uh, what was the book? The Inmates Are Running the Asylum uh, was written, and that was the first time that personas were used for a software development. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a nutshell, a persona is a fictional representation of a group of people that share the same goals. So, mm-hmm. um, in, in the software world, that could go across roles, like system roles. It could also grow across segments like market segments. And the reason you care about the groups in terms of goals is because since they share the same goals, they um, share the same objectives, um, they probably have the same pain points, they probably have the same you know, barriers of entry, and they're probably measuring success the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been developing personas for a long time now. Mm. And the, the wonderful thing about personas is that once a company adopts a persona, I've seen personas being used by the salespeople to work out um, the sales story or pitch mm-hmm. that they're going to tell. Mm-hmm. I see that same story used, that same persona used by marketing mm-hmm. to determine the market message. Mm-hmm. I've seen that same persona used by the people designing the product and service, right? Because that's the same person. Um, obviously, as a designer, the persona is what guides me. Because if I know the persona, right? then I know what colors to use, I know what metaphors make sense to them, right? Um, and that will really guide my design decisions. I understand what their goals are, I understand what the barriers of entries are, mm-hmm. so I can design a solution that eliminates those barriers and those pain points and is more focused on the way that they want to see information. The personas also um, tell you um, who to invite into your usability studies. Which kind of leads to the next phase. We talked about the heuristic review, mm-hmm. like look at the current solution and identify opportunities for improvement. Mm-hmm. Well, once you do that, then there's this whole iterative prototyping cycle where you design something and you want to get you want to review it either with subject matter experts inside the organization that um, hopefully are a good representative of the target audience, or even better. Um, review it with the target audience as you iterate and they can give you brutal feedback like no I'd never call it that or that's stupid why did you group it that way or no I wouldn't want to do that I'd want to do this first and hey where's this Mm -hmm. you know I true story I once had a client um, that uh, designed recommendation engines this was like 15 years ago Mm -hmm. um, for companies like uh, The Gap and Victoria Mm -hmm. uh, Secrets 
The, um, the client was designing uh, a recommendation engine, and they, like I said, they had some very big clients, mm -hmm. so it's a B2B model. Um, and their target audience were uh, the marketers. Um, but we did some preliminary research, and I said, you know, I really want to understand, um, you know, some, I want to profile your companies. These aren't necessarily personas, but just company profiles. And I think you can relate to this. They said, we find that our, our clients fall into three buckets. There are those that don't even touch our recommendation engine, and they see a steady return on investment, and they're happy. He goes, there's another group that are always you know, tweaking it, right? Because we give them the tools to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and they're usually screwing themselves because mm -hmm. they don't know what the hell they're doing. He goes, and then there's a small percentage of really strategic people, you know, strategic clients that actually know how to tweak it and actually can get a little bump out of it, mm -hmm. right? So I said, okay, that's great. I go, um, as we're designing the new interface for them, let's make sure we get a good mix of them and uh, review the designs. And mm -hmm. at this point, the designs are just paper prototypes or what we call wireframes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had five days. On Monday, we met with client A in the morning and we walked them through the new screen designs, just clicking through some paper prototypes. Um, <clears throat> ton of feedback, right? Took all kinds of notes. That afternoon, I probably spent a couple of hours making changes based on what the first client had said. They also had some ideas, some things that I didn't think about, the client didn't think about, added those in. Mm -hmm. Tuesday morning, we meet with client two. Show them the updated design based on the feedback we got from the first client. Um, got more great feedback. I think we got another really good idea, but probably maybe spent an hour making changes. Mm -hmm. Wednesday, client three. So at this point, client three is benefiting from any insights we got from the first two clients. Mm -hmm. And um, they looked at it, they had some good feedback, um, nothing new, um, but some tweaks. Mm -hmm. Maybe spent a half hour that afternoon mm -hmm. making revisions. Thursday, Client four, um, they loved it. They had very little feedback. I maybe spent a few minutes changing some things. Friday, client five, showed it, loved it, no suggestions. I kid you not. But the, the point of the story is the power of iterative review and revision with your target audience. Yes. The key to that is knowing who your target audience is because yes. if you're reviewing it with the wrong people, you're not going to get results. And one of the things that happens, especially in big companies, is that they think the person that knows their target market is someone internally in the company. Yes. So they have this one data point. Yes. And that one data point could be terribly wrong. Yeah. Where um, talking to your actual customers is really the key to success. And how, how do you decide how many personas you should have? Oh, statistically, oh, personas. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to say how many people you need to interview to make a persona. Well, that's a, another interesting question to Yeah, answer. five, statistically. So there's been analysis on this. And if you talk to five people that match your target. So when you're developing personas, um, which is fun to do. I'm, like, oh, I'm a geek. I yeah. think it's fun to do. Yeah. But the first thing you do, with, for the way how I do it at least, is I'll run a workshop internally, um, bringing in all the stakeholders of who they think the persona is. Mm -hmm. Um, and this does a lot of wonderful things. Uh, first thing, it gets me up to speed on who they think their persona is, mm -hmm. right? So I can create what I call a proto-persona or a mm -hmm. straw man. But it, it's also interesting to see how diverse 
um, internally how, how the different silos think it is. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's the beginning of the healing process. Mm. It's the beginning of internally the stakeholders and the leaders to realize that, oh shit, we have these different perspectives on who our target is. Mm -hmm. um, and then I bring them along as part of the process. So then I go back to them, I go, okay. Um, and you usually end up with anywhere from three to five uh, personas. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, then you say, okay, well, I need to talk to five each of these. And it can really vary because you might want to look across segmentation, demographics. There's lots of different things you might. Mm -hmm. So even for five, I might still end up talking to 50 different people because mm -hmm. there's all these different ways that they want to, that's important to them and their company. Mm. So you do the analysis, i.e. You conduct, you conduct the interviews. Um, and then you come back with uh, a revised uh, version of the persona that you started with, your, pro, your proto persona. And you sit down with them and you tell them that, hey, based, based on the interviews and the people that you identified, it's really not five personas, it's, it's really three. Um, and what you thought were your primaries, turns out they're not your primaries, turns out these are your primaries. So you do the you do the, you do the you do the analysis. You talk to people and you come up with. Now, obviously, a lot of it is is subjective and qualitative, but a lot of it is quantitative too. I mean, you can start adding things up. Like out of these five people, all five of them said this was their pain point, that was right. their barrier, that yes. was their goal. So five out of five said that for that persona, then we know that that's true for that persona. So that's how you um, use both qualitative and quantitative uh, methodologies to develop the persona to make sure that you have the, tar the right target audience when you are reviewing uh, whatever the solution may be. It could be a product, it could be a service, but the methodology remains the same. And the last part of that is um, the testing, usability testing. Yes. Um, and usability testing comes in at least two forms, uh, formative and summative. Formative means any kind of testing you would be doing prior to the release of the product or service. And summative means any testing that you do after the release of the product and services. So if you're thinking about uh, well, Internet of Things, right, there's probably a lot of uh, formative testing that you could do with a prototype to uh, really um, enhance whatever that experience needs to be um, you know, with that device in that space or however it's being used. So that's called formative testing. And formative testing tends to be uh, iterative. Um, the prototypes tend to be very lightweight, but it informs the, the final product or service. Mm -hmm. um, after the product or service has been done, then you do um, summative testing, which means the product is real, it's out in the real world, and we're gonna find out now that it's been out in the real world, how's it doing? Mm -hmm. um, and if you did a good job with your formative testing, right, um, you probably already have your, your criteria of success, and then you can find out if, um, how well did you match those uh, criteria of success in the summative mm -hmm. testing. Also what comes out of the summative testing, not only can it tell you how successful were you were at whatever your usability criteria were, um, but it also can inform the next iteration of whatever your product is. Right, it's like, hey, you know, we identified in the formative testing that this was something that people really cared about. We knew we weren't gonna get it in this release, and sure enough, that ended up being an issue in the summative testing. So let's, you know, that can help drive the pri priorities um, for the next iteration of, you know, whatever the product or service is that you're developing. 
I've had such fun being a participant and a spectator in this. I, I found it so valuable. I, um, back in Qualcomm days, they have these amazing user experience labs, and you take prototypes and sometimes working products, and you put them in front of these uh, very diverse sets of people who often strikingly different from the people that are observing them, which is amazing. Yeah, uh, so that's one of the biggest challenges when you're running a study is um, people uh, with a background in uh, research or usability or cognitive science um, um, understand that there's a lot of bias involved and you have to structure your questions and your response in a very tempered particular way um, that's, you know, we call it empathy, but really it's about, um, you know, being able to listen without prejudice and not get too uh, vested uh, in the solution itself. Um, where, as you've already hinted at, there's people on the other side of that two-way mirror um, who might be the product owner or might be the developer or might be the designer, and they'll be yelling at them. It's like, no, it's that button! You idiot! Why can't you know? So in uh, and I've been I've been in situations where people had to be asked to leave because really they, they you know they care and it's it's passion they care yeah. about they care about their product they care yeah. about their solution yeah. like I said maybe they were the developer that wrote the code maybe they were the graphic designer that made that icon that they couldn't figure out maybe it's the product owner that just really knew it was a great idea but the idea didn't evolve quite the way that they thought it would and. Yeah, and the other cool. thing I've, I've seen also is like the subject, you bring these people in, uh, and, and I remember we had folks uh, testing this. Uh, it was a mobile app to, uh, uh, you could use it to pay for your gasoline and buy a carbon offset at the same time. And so we had like people who were actually quite wealthy, who uh, um, they drove an Audi and da da da, and then there was other people that didn't have a car, and we had them in. But the thing that I, really struck me is, as the person who hopefully wasn't screaming at them at the other side of the two-way mirror, um, was the people that were conducting the, the questions. It was like a psychotherapy session because the subjects were, you're paying them, otherwise why are they going to go through this process? And they kind of want to please you. And so quite often it was like they wanted to give you the answer that they felt like you wanted. Yeah, it's part of the bias that you have to control. And the question, the, 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 the person that was facilitating the questions, it, it was like a psychotherapy session where you never, ever actually find out what's in the head of the therapist. They, uh, you, you know, they, the, the subject would say, uh, um, so is this how I do it? And, 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 and again and again, the interviewer would say, well, what do you think? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the, it's, uh, so it, God, it involves a lot of facilitation skills. Um, and, and a big part of it is um, not giving it away. And it's, it's something you tell them, so that when you run a study like this, a couple of things you tell them right up front is, uh, number one, go ahead and ask the question that you're thinking but know that I'm not going to answer it. We'll answer it at the end of the study, yeah, yeah. but because I want to, I want to know what you're thinking. We call it uh, uh, the thinking out loud protocol. So just give me your stream of consciousness. And women are much better than than men are. Men need a lot of prodding because you'll be sitting there, they'll be staring at a screen, and you have to prod them and go. So what are you thinking right now? 
Yeah. Like, uh, oh, I'm trying to decide if I need to push this button or go back. Well, why are you thinking that? It's like, well, I think if I push this button, this is going to happen. Well, why do you think that's going to happen? Well, because it says this. Is that what you want? It's like, no. I go, what do you want? Oh, I want this. Well, what, how would you expect to do that? Well, I think I would do this, but that's not there. And that's gems. I mean, yes. just, in those, just in those few sentences, I found out that that's not what he calls it. That's not what he's looking for. But he's looking for this, and it ain't there, right? <laughs> so as a designer, you're doing this, right? Oh. And I'm going to tell you, I've, uh, I don't want to know how many hundreds of my own designs that I've tested, but I can tell you, I guarantee you, every time I've ran a study, there were things that I thought were obvious and easy that were not. Mm -hmm. But the ones that still blow my mind are the ones that I think, you know, they're going to struggle with this, and they don't. Mm -hmm. And it just goes back to you are not the target audience for this. Mm. So you design things for, let's say you're designing an application for nurses, right? And for me, this workflow doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and that's not what I'd call it. But you know, based on the persona and the research I did, this is the way it should be. And I'm thinking, well, that's not going to work at all. Sure enough, they go click, 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 because it totally makes sense to them. And that thing that I thought was brilliant that I designed, that little cool drop-down thing, they didn't see it. They didn't click on it. They completely missed it, right? And you just got to be humble. A big part of it is not just empathy and to be able to listen without prejudice, but the other part is the humility, just accepting that. I thought it was a good idea, but I have to go back to the drawing board. So I I've, want to bring this back a little bit to beacons and indoor location and, uh, uh, and real-time location systems where you're tagging assets and so forth. So I can see how what we've described works for a web page or a mobile app. You have a mock-up and you use uh, bits of paper to kind of uh, prototype what the user experience might be and then you rough something up very clunky and they use it and you get the feedback. But what if I'm designing like a self-checkout experience and it's actually a retail store? It's a three-dimensional sure. space. I've got uh, so I've designed digital displays that uh, respond when I pick something up. How do you prototype that? Sure. So um, I've designed experiences for kiosks. Uh, we just did something a couple years ago with a casino mm -hmm. where we were designing the casino experience. So. How does the, all the way from, you know, what does the player receive in the mail or email or in text to what is their experience like getting to the casino, parking, um, the casino floor experience, what's their service like, what's the restaurant like, what's the hotel like. Um, for many years, I uh, worked uh, with TEDx San Diego and the experience design team. So what's the experience like for people who are attending the TEDx talk, to the people who are on the stage, to the sponsors, right? The techniques and methodologies are still the same. Um, the only difference is, is the type of experience. Uh, one of my favorites is, think about um, Disney, one of my favorite brands, right? Mm -hmm. They have a group of people they call Imagineers, mm -hmm. and they're designing that whole experience around a ride. So they're thinking about how do we make lines interesting you know, how do we control where they're looking at as they're, you know, walking through the experience? Or how do we control what they're seeing, hearing, smelling uh, when they're uh, in the ride itself? The methodology is all the same. So it doesn't matter. So let's take a, an IoT example. Mm -hmm. um, have a client now where they're in the construction space, right? 
um, and they, uh, they're tagging things uh, you know, like tools and they also have ca cameras and monitors that monitor like you know, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. right? So that's a physical thing in a physical space um, and it has its, its own challenges about you know, what's its power source. Um, the other interesting thing about a construction space is that it evolves. In other words, they're in this space now, but once they're done with that, they're going to move on to that space. Mm. So those, those devices need to be monitored and move with them. So there is the actual, there's the actual thing in the space, and what's that experience like for the people who have to install them or take them out or move them? And then there's also a counter online experience where people are going to want to monitor the data that's coming off of uh, the device uh, on a screen. It can be a mobile device or a tablet or oh. a web page. Yeah, so with the IoT, there's the person that's doing the in-store navigation, the shopper maybe, mm -hmm. that's trying to find the uh, fruit or the pair of underwear that they want in the <laughs> store. Yep. And then there's the user experience of the, 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 the person that's kind of in the dark room that's uh, using this data and trying yeah. to... Yeah, like I said, I spent six years at FICO designing the data scientist experience. So they have to look at all the data that would come off of the device and you know, you know, hopefully make good decisions um, based on that. And at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's really, you're really helping people make better decisions. It could be making a better decision about, you know, I want to get my wife some flowers, right? Mm -hmm. Or it could be better decisions like, I want to make sure this nuclear plant doesn't explode. Um, it could be better decisions like, I want to make sure that the flow around my iPhone is enough so it doesn't overheat. Um, but it's all about decision making. Very good. Well, Sean Van Tyne, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, I believe you have a website. Yes, I do. <laughs> and it's under it's under design right now. So. Oh, okay. Well, but, I looked at it last night and it looked pretty good to me. Oh, SeanVantine.com? Sean well, yeah, there's SeanVantine.com, but uh, VantineGroup.com is really okay. kind of the business side of the house. All right. Um, but yeah, they're both, they're both under redesign. I was like, God, I got to get them done before this interview. But it is what it is, right? It too is constantly evolving. Very good. Well, I, this has been really educational. You've got books. Uh, you're out there consulting. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a treat talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So what would the... Uh, Presumably a tough choice coming down to three songs that you'd take. It on was. It was really tough. It, um, it became a Sunday breakfast conversation at the Vantine house. Excellent. Yeah. So, um, and mostly between me and my 18-year-old daughter, uh, Jackie. Because um, it's interesting to get their perspective on things. Like, oh, Dad, you know, what do you like about this and what do you mm -hmm. like about that? So I think the three that I came up with, if I, if I can recall... Um, one of them was um, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes by Paul Simon. Um, it's from his Graceland album. It, yeah. won the, it won the Grammy that particular year. That's uh, fascinating. It's on my list as well. Really? I, uh, it's, no, it's yeah, not. It's it so obscure. Oh, no, no, and the reason, a, yeah, the reason it yeah. is, it's Laura's and I's song. So when Laura and I were dating oh. back in the day, right. when Laura and I were dating, uh, I'll never forget it. We were at her place growing up in Michigan in her basement, because we have basements in Michigan. Right. And we're watching Saturday Night Live, and Paul Simon was the musical guest, and he sang Diamond on the Soles of Her Shoes. Oh, awesome. And it's like that memory, right? So that has to be there. Um, uh, other songs that I was thinking about, 
you know, being on Mars is nothing in particular, but um, something by Mozart, mm -hmm. just because, uh, you know, Mozart is very creative. And when I listen to Mozart, uh, it, it, I used to listen to Mozart a lot in the studio. It just mm -hmm. helps, helps you free your mind and open things up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And the studio is your painting studio? Yeah, back in my younger days when right. I was an artist. Yeah. Uh, I still listen to Mozart, though, like when I write. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mozart's kind of my go-to. I'll put in the... Nowadays, we, we don't have headphones anymore. We have earbuds. Right. Right. And it's funny yes. when my kids call them headphones. It's like, no, that is, that is not headphones. They are earbuds. It's the bud goes in your ear. Right. It's not a headphone. It's different. Yeah, it's different. So uh, definitely some Mozart okay. if I was on Mars. So I got something to remind me of my wife. I have something to listen to if I'm doing something creative. Yeah. Um, God, I, the third one was really, you know, I don't know about the third one. I'm, I'm not sure if I could really come up with a third one. Uh, maybe something... Uh, Maybe something like September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. All right. Something that um, you know you can get your groove on, right? Yeah. Something to remember my wife by. Something to get some work done, and maybe you know something to to move uh, by. So there you go. Wonderful choices. They're evocative for me as well. That's uh, that's the great thing. That reminds me of being uh, 17, just finishing up school, and uh, we were grown up enough that they let us have a common area where we could listen to music. Mm -hmm. And that Earth, Wind and Fire album was one that was uh, played a lot. So I must be a little bit older than you. <laughs> when, I, when I think of uh, Earth, Wind and Fire, especially in their heyday, um, it was, again, growing up in Michigan, uh -huh. I have a very specific memory about um, basement parties. So oh, right. when you grow up back east and people have basements in the right. wintertime, yeah. right, it's too cold to do anything outside, so you have these parties in the basement. Um, and usually the parents, I'm in middle school, right? So, or we call it junior high, they call it middle school here. Um, but like usually the parents are upstairs and you know, they have all the snacks and the drinks and then the kids are downstairs listening to the music <laughs> and dancing. And there's usually some more sophisticated couple in the corner right. who might be smooching or something right. like that. <laughs> A lot of memories, yeah. very good. Thanks music, so much. Music and memories, you can't, you can't really separate inseparable, them. Inseparable, inseparable. Yeah. Good choices, Those thank are my you. my choices. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.